Welcome to It's a Good Life, the podcast for entrepreneurs, where it's all about growing yourself and your business. Here's your host, founder of America's largest business coaching company, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you and welcome to It's a Good Life. Today, we have a very special guest for you. Her name is Manisha Thakur, and Manisha has worked in the financial services business for over 30 years with a particular emphasis on economic empowerment and financial well-being, especially helping out a lot of the ladies. However, Manisha was a self-proclaimed member of the Cult of Never Enough, which we'll be talking about, which nearly destroyed her life before finding that her net worth and her self-worth are not the same, which we've talked about many times on this program. Manisha has co-authored two personal finance books and has just released her newest book we're going to talk about today called Money Zen. Her work focuses on helping people of all ages balance their financial health and their emotional well-being. So, Manisha, we're very honored to have you. I know you've been on the Today Show and Good Morning America. This has to be the highlight for you. Absolutely. (laughs) Welcome to It's a Good Life. We're delighted to have you. Well, it is such a pleasure to be here. Well, we're going to have a good time. So let's dive right in. We do short form podcasts, 25 minute drive time type thing. So Money Zen, talk about Money Zen and also kind of how you ultimately escaped out of the cult, as you call it, of never enough. Sure. So I define money zen as a state of mind where you have calm, confidence, and clarity around both your relationship with money and the role that you want money to play in your life. And as you referenced, I had found myself at age 50 in a place where I literally was defining myself as a human being according to the equation of self-worth equals net worth. And that's what threw me into the cult of never enough, because if that's how you are thinking about yourself, that line has no stopping. Right. And so the way I got out of the cult is I decided to spend two years interviewing multidisciplinary experts to find out how someone could fall into this state of mind. And what I discovered is there are four broad factors that drive people in different ways, depending on your circumstances, to fall into this cult. And that the way out of the cult As much as I wish I could give you three steps to or five secrets, the way out of the cult is through this research and understanding. 80% of the way out is understanding how you got in. And we all have a story, right? I mean, I grew up in Ireland, a country that had a famine that defined us for 150 years. You know, grew up in a 700 square foot house with eight people and, you know, living in hand-me-downs and so on and so forth. And the culture I grew up in was, If a fella drove down the street in a Rolls Royce, the culture was, I wonder who that guy had to screw over to get that. So it meant in order to be a good guy or a good gal, you couldn't be rich. And so these become defining things and they shape your actions. They're on an unconscious level. And again, money's inanimate, right? It's it's pieces of paper. It's numbers on a spreadsheet. It's numbers in a bank account. Yet we have such an emotional relationship with us. Maybe we had one parent that was a spender one parent that was a saver, one parent that's about control, uh, one person that views it as far as achievement. What was your background regarding money? I grew up in a household 
Um, I'm second generation mixed race. I grew up in a small town in Indiana, and I was one of a handful of people that wasn't exceptionally white. And while my parents taught me about money, and my dad taught me a lot about investing, my mom encouraged me to think about money as something that gives women voices and choices, I was teased mercilessly between the fourth grade and the sixth grade period. And you would think, my gosh, you were so young then. Why, why would this have any kind of impact? Well, the reason it did is that the behaviors I used to deal with being ostracized as a young person were to dive into academics and seek reward and feel seen by my teachers. And as you move into the adult world, what replaces that but money and success in the business world? And so that was the story that really drove me into this dark hole of never enough. When did you get to the end of yourself with it? I mean, you know, you have to break down to break through. When did you get to the point where you kind of threw your hands in the air and said, something's wrong? When someone gets to the point of never enough, it's typically when they've gotten more. And you find out that, you know, money can buy me a bed, but it can't buy me a good night's sleep. You know, what was your breakthrough moment? Like so many people, mine was health related. And I ended up having a very severe illness that could have killed me. And I was forced to take a look at how I was living and understand what got me there and figure out how to change it. Or I literally was going to work myself to death. And so that became kind of the epiphany and, and something's got to change. Correct. Correct. And I wasn't ready to let go of chasing after money. I wanted to get healthy and keep chasing after it, but that wasn't going to work. And so what, what happened from there? What were the steps? How did you get from where you were to where you are now? I found the process of researching and understanding that there are four core sets of influences. One is trauma that typically happens to us before age 25, making us engage in behaviors that might have been helpful for a brief period of time, but continuing on into our work life become runaway traits. A second bucket was cultural norms expectations of how people define each other based on the answer to what do you do. The third is societal influences, which are the unrealistic images we are bombarded with every day of how people live versus the actual amount of money it would take to live that way. Big gap between that. And the fourth is evolutionary biology that inherently is driving us from our amygdala. And so it was understanding for me the combination of those factors that helped me identify what behaviors I needed to change, what mindset. And what I realized was this process can affect people of any age or income or ethnicity. And that's why I wanted to share this message. And I do it in the book in a um, I've never been so raw and candid in a public conversation as I am in the book because I wanted people to understand that no matter what led them to this place, they're not alone. Well, and it's brilliant. And, uh, you know, you talk about societal. I mean, we live in a world today where people post their curated best life. You know, the best restaurant they ate in that week. We have a relationship with a guy who's one of the top image photographers here in town. 
someone will pay him $150,000 for a day for photographs, you know, to make, oh, I just came out of the pool and this is how I naturally look. And he has 26 staff, you know, so everything is this false promotion of this lifestyle, like never before. It was always keeping up with the Joneses has been around for thousands of years, but now it's curated, it's promoted. And we know that creates anxiety, it creates stress, it creates all these different things. And so for you to be so real and so raw and genuine in sharing your story, it's brave of you and fantastic. And the book is a great read, and we'll talk a little bit more about it here. I'm a big fan of John D. Rockefeller. You know, I'm a big history student. You know, Rockefeller Center, here's his principles for life. And very few of them have anything to do with money. But he was the richest guy in the world. Even by today's standards, he would be way beyond Bill Gates. He was asked, right, how much does it take for a man to be truly happy? And you know his answer was, just a little more than he has. You talk about the cult of never enough. How do you define enough? I define enough as a feeling of contentment. We are so trained by society to define enough by an amount of money, a set of possessions, or a position in the professional world or our our cultural tribe. And, you know, if you look at a country like Finland, um, they recently literally put out a free course on happiness. I think happiness is the wrong word for what they're trying to teach us. Um, But the idea is that you feel whole in yourself and the activities that you engage in nourish that feeling. And so you're acting not from a place of scarcity, you're acting from a place of contentment, which doesn't mean that your life is perfect. It also doesn't mean you stop striving for things, but it is the energy inside of you that is the big shift. In Ireland, pretty happy-go-lucky people in a lot of ways, but they describe it as happiness. But when you talk about contentment, I I definitely think it's a better word. And one of the challenges we see, because I'm a big goal setter and a big goal getter, and I teach goals. One of the things I think that happens with folks is that we don't celebrate and take time to celebrate even when we do achieve. Like when we break the tape and win the medal, you know, when in the Olympics, they work hard, 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 and then they break the tape. Then the goal is they, they celebrate and they're celebrated and they, they do that. In our world, I mean, I just had a meeting with my own staff today who've been doing some remarkable things. And we've launched this big initiative called a Do It Now campaign. And it's taken an extraordinary amount of work. And all kinds of departments had to come together. And I sat in this meeting and all these people are tired. They're a little beat up. It took so much work. It's brilliant for our customers, but they're on to the next thing. And I said, we need to take a moment to celebrate what we've done here because you got to be content with your achievements and what you have done. Otherwise, you have no chance. This kind of segues for me to something I saw in the book, which was this whole dynamic of the counterfeit financial culture. And I just think it's a great insight. Nobody's really talking about that. And maybe you could address that for folks for a second. Sure. We have a lot of healthy dialogue at this point around how absurd the images we're seeing in social media are. But what we're not having is conversation about how absurd the images we see regularly on TV shows and um, film are. And by that, I mean, if you take any TV show, a police, a a legal, a medical drama, and you look at the characters and you look at how they are dressed and what cars they drive, what homes they live in, 
how they socialize. I literally went back in a number of these different shows and movies and took a look at how much the average pay was for these different professions. And then I calculated what it would cost to groom and live like them. And what I found is almost without exception, you would have to earn 30 to 50% more than those positions pay to live like that. So when we look in almost every direction now at life, we are comparing ourselves to something that is counterfeit. That's the old story, right? Uh, you know, I told this story before. I, I had a hanger for an airplane. The people we shared the hanger with was a company called St. John's Knit, famous clothing line. And the model for St. John's Knit was getting on the plane. And there were posters of her all around the hangar. And she didn't look like anything like the posters. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, when you don't look like you, but that's the image you're portraying, so many people are trying to do that. And, and again, identity is such a hot topic these days. You know, what car you drive, where you live, what the neighbors do. It seems like keeping up with the Joneses has been weaponized. And you talk about this in your book, that's kind of the three reasons why it's easier to fall prey to that than ever before. And I think this would be very practical for people because people know there's a problem and they know they're feeling financial stress. Uh, right now in the middle of this, you know, we've had, you know, record interest rates. We have uh, a downturn in the economy and yet debt is at an all-time high. People have maintained their level of spending. In fact, last year was the highest amount of credit ever accumulated in American history. And 50% of it happened in the last two months of the year, which meant people spent the same amount of money at Christmas and the holidays that they were going to as if they had money, and they just financed it at 20-some percent interest rates. So, you know, on a practical level, it's showing up in, in the marketplace right now. The consumer is still spending, which Wall Street's happy about, but it's a lot of spending on credit. And so why are we people putting themselves in that difficult situation? They know it's problematic. They know it's stressful. I owe, I owe, so off to work, I go. So maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of why people are falling into the keeping up with the Joneses more than ever before. There are three reasons. And the, the first is that personal finance isn't taught. I went to Harvard Business School. They teach corporate finance, but they don't teach personal finance. And I have many friends um, who have graduated and are struggling with just managing their personal finances because they weren't taught this skill. And they live in a world where Debt is not considered a, quote, four-letter word in the sense that um, certain other words are considered that. It's considered a tool that is not detrimental. The second reason is that the financial landscape has gotten geometrically more complex than it was, say, 50 years ago. 50 years ago, if you wanted to buy a home, you had to put 20% or more down. And the banks cared about how you were going to pay that back because they kept those loans on their books. As we started doing things like securitizing mortgages and so forth, lending standards got to the point where it was very easy and profitable to lend people more money than they can afford. And then that moved into credit cards and home equity lines of credit and so forth. And then the third factor, so you, you're not educated, widely speaking, anyone. You've got this complicated set of choices to select from, 
And now you've got easy access to credit because it's a very profitable industry. And I think that middle piece is really important, that geometric increase in complexity, because people don't know what they don't know and oftentimes end up in very dangerous financial situations that they didn't have the opportunity to 50 years ago. Well, when we do our events, you know, we, we teach goal setting, time management, and financial budgeting. All three things are not taught in any major school, in any of the best schools. And I've talked at these different universities, and they're the most basic things. So we, in our coaching program, long-term, we won't coach someone who won't adhere to a budget. And the reason being is we have all these fantastic lead generation things, grow their business. But no matter what, if you don't control your finances, there's no way to win. There's just no way to win. They must be controlled. There's people who don't like the term budget because they come from a, a family background like you talked about. There's trauma or cultural norms or societal, and they feel controlled by it. Their mom was super worried about money, so everything was control. So we go, okay, we're going to call it a spending plan. But either way, there has to be financial controls in place. Otherwise, you will spend more than you make. The culture is incentivized to have you spend more than you make. Hey, no payments for six months, no payments for a year. And now you're dealing with interest rates that are the highest we've seen in decades. And so we're having people spiral down. That's why I do believe the timing of your message, the timing of the book is critical. People know they have a problem. People know their lifestyles are out of whack. But the truth of the matter is, why do I do what I know that's not good for me is because of the emotional connection to it, the psychological connection to it, the biological connection to it, right? As you well know, someone who's in debt goes and spends money and they get a hit of dopamine right? So they get their fix. So as we talk about these things, you found yourself on the treadmill of human doing rather than human being. And it seems like when you had this breakthrough, then the money stuff started to get aligned afterwards. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that difference between, because right now it's a badge of honor to be busy. Everybody's overwhelmed. The more work we do, in, in, especially in American, Western societies, the more you do, the more you're revered. How do you get away from this human doing to being a human being and then find more peace with the whole financial bit? I think it goes back to a false statement that we are taught early on, which is if you do X, you will have Y and then you will be happy. And I feel like what we need to do is flip that around for a wide range of reasons and say to ourselves, who do I want to be as a human? What kind of character do I want to have? In what way do I want to give back and help other people through my business, through my uh, volunteer activities? Who do I want to be? What then do I have to do to be that person? Then, not to sound too woo-woo, trust that you will then have what it is that, that the universe intends you to have to lead towards contentment because the root of your activity is stemming from something very healthy. And I want to emphasize, this does not say don't be ambitious. If you want to be a successful business person, great. How do you do that in a way that matches the character that you would like to have? And so that's what I think it boils down to. 
No, that's big. And look, I'm a big character guy. You know, in from 1950 through 2000, all of the best-selling self-help books worldwide were character-based. It was Zig Ziglar's. It was Og Mandino's Greatest Salesman in the World. It was, you know, The Power of Positive Thinking. It was a lot of dynamics that were character-based. And what's happened in since 2000, especially it's ramped up this last 10 years, all the personal growth and self-development books are all how-to-based. And it's very immediate. And those things are helpful. Techniques are helpful. But what happens is you can learn a ton of techniques and be just faster as the mouse on the wheel. And now you've got a better technique and better habits and better this and better that. And this wheel is running faster. What I sense with you is you're bringing a sense of humanity to this whole thing where you're talking about wealth beyond just the money. The money, and the money is important. And again, people always say to me, oh, Brian, you're, you're talking about these other things because you have money. I'd like to have it first. But you specifically talk about there's three keys to this emotional wealth. And I love this phrase. You really write about it well, but maybe it'd be great for our audience to hear about this emotional wealth. And what's the three keys to that? I define emotional wealth as having the energy in your life being driven by three C's, connection, creativity, and curiosity. And I find, and particularly in the research I did for the book, that from a multidisciplinary standpoint, a wide range of academic experts have pointed out to the benefit of human connection. And one of my favorite uh, sayings that came from an expert was connection creates balance. And when you feel discombobulated, ask yourself, to whom or to what do I need to connect in this moment in order to incrementally move forward towards contentment? And, uh, you know, in a way, that's another form of character and driving from that. Creativity is another one. Thinking in a way that is playful and, you know, as if you've got a blank canvas and you are creating your own formula or rubric or mental mindset that stems from what means something to you, not the cultural norms or societal influences. And then the last piece is curiosity, which when you are moving at the speed of light with your big flashing neon busy badge on, it's hard to be curious. And curiosity fuels the connection and the creativity. And so when those things are going, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life, your level of emotional wealth compounds. Yeah, that's beautiful. I know my brother is very happy. He's the CEO of our company, and he just launched a program called The Curious CEO, where he's interviewing these CEOs and just unleashing his own curiosity. And there's a, there's a lightness to it. There's a spirit to it. And one of the things that's happened is we've kind of lost our curiosity because people think they have the information because they have an iPhone. You know, we have access to information like we've never had before. But I, like, I, I will take my kids and we'll go to London. And my kids, I'm like, hey, guys, turn off the phones. Like, that's Buckingham Palace. You know what I mean? And, and what's happened is we're losing that curiosity. It's like, no, no, I'm on Instagram. We just traveled a whole, from San Diego to London so we could see Buckingham Palace. We could see, you know, Westminster. We can see the Thames. We can see Wimbledon. You know? And, and it's, it really is, you have to fight against the culture 
to unleash that curiosity. But I think curiosity engages the brain, engages the spirit, goes back to creativity, and then forms a form of connection. It's beautiful stuff, and it is beautiful stuff. And I love the fact you're really the only person in the space that I see who's really focused on this whole dynamic of the emotional aspect, the spiritual aspect, the personal aspect of interacting with money. Money is an inanimate object. And to be honest with you, I found myself, when I worked hard, I did some basic fundamentals. It was easy to get ahead. It was easy to be out of debt. It was easy to acquire. It's easy to grow. What's not easy is to not do it with bad habits. It's not easy to do it in a non-manic way. It's not easy to do it in a way where there is balance. So you don't want to gain the whole world and lose your own soul. So congrats to you on Money Zen. And I encourage everyone listening to get a copy of that. It'd be a great, a great read for you. I think you'll enjoy it. And Manisha really does a great job of going first. She goes first. She's transparent. And in her transparency, I think it'll allow you, the reader, to be transparent. Manisha, we have five questions we ask everybody on our show, no matter who we've had. And it always just gives us a different insight into who we have on the program. So first question I have for you is, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever received? Live within your means. <laughs> who gave you that? My grandfather ah. um, and my father reiterated because that's where the root of so many of these problems we're talking about yeah. stem from. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, yes. Can you put your name to it? Came from my grandfather and reiterated by my father, so great stuff. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Patience. Ah, God bless us all. Number three, what book has been uh, most instrumental in your life? Virginia Woolf's book, A Room of One's Own, written in 1917, but it encouraged women to think that you need some money and some space of your own to come into fruition, which was a radical idea back then. She was 100 years ahead of her time, wasn't she? Amazing. What one movie do you watch over and over? If you're ever flicking through a channel and it's on, you stop. What's the one that always grabs your attention? Carpe Diem. Dead Poet Society? The Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Love it. Love it. It's a theme of our upcoming Peak Experience event this year in uh, May. So Carpe Diem, it's it's a great concept. Seize the day. And then lastly, what does the good life mean to you, Manisha? Contentment. I know I said that before, but that is what I have come back to as I've gone through this two-year experience of researching the book. It's not happiness. It's contentment. Mm, I love it. It's a great word. And it feels like peace and it feels like patience. And uh, to having content with what you have and content with where you're going and content with the goals you're pursuing, I think that's good. I really appreciate you taking the time for us. I know you're a super busy woman and you've got all these demands and you're flying in and you got in late last night to Portland and you joined us today. You're so good. We thank you so much. I think this is a great insight. I encourage everybody to get a copy of that book, The Money Zen. Money Zen is fantastic. It's a great book. I think you'll enjoy it. And we thank you for being on our show today, Manisha. Brian, it's been an honor. Well, someone who taught me a lot about money and how to live within my means was my mother, Therese. Just celebrated her 93rd birthday, and she's going to send us off today with her customary Irish blessing that we love to send the show off with. So over to you, ma'am. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 